that. If you have your Bibles, let's go to the book of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. I say all that to warn you that my southern accent may come out more after having spent time with them. You tend to fall into that very quickly. Um, after Even after being away for so long, you go back and you hang around and then you start talking with that accent very quickly. You have your Bibles in Luke 2. Uh, we're going to read together um, this section of scripture that is commonly called the Christmas story. Um, as I was reading it, uh, we're reading from the ESV and that's what we've been going through for the last uh, several months now in our series. And I thought, you know, this just doesn't sound right unless Linus is reading it. Uh, so I was trying to think of a way to get Linus to come and read it for us today. I even kicked around putting him on the screen for you, but I thought that might be a little bit silly. But, uh, but uh, this, this passage of scripture is just so commonly known as the Christmas story. And of course, we see the events unfolded. And what I noticed about this is just the plain facts that are laid out for us in this text. And so we're going to read them together. I would ask you to read uh, with your hearts and mind open this morning as we walk through this text together. And then, uh, by God's grace, we begin to unpack these events and apply them to our own hearts and lives today. Let's begin reading in verse number one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each in his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to bring forth, to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord hath made known to us. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the eight, end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angels before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we ask you that you would add your blessing to the reading of the word of God this morning. 
Father, I pray that what is said today that would be an edification to your people, would challenge our hearts and minds as we walk through this text together. And Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather and to be able to open the Word of God together. Thank you for the music we've heard already that work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' precious name we ask it all. Amen. I love uh, Christmas hymns, and I love to read the Christmas carols that we sing, and I think often we sing them, and we don't necessarily quite comprehend all that's being said in the song because they're so familiar to us. And I think anytime we read a passage of Scripture over and over like this text, uh, because of its familiarity, because of the familiarity with the, the songs, that we can miss what they're actually saying. Um, I think of a way in the manger, no crying he made. I don't know that that's exactly accurate, so I imagine he cried. Um, we, we think of things of that nature that we read. Uh, I think of joy to the world. Really, joy to the world is probably more about his second coming than it was his first coming, and yet we sing it about the first coming. Um, o Little Town of Bethlehem, and uh, what an incredible little song this is. Uh, he says in verse number three of the Little Town of Bethlehem, how silently, how silently. The wondrous gift is given. And I thought that's a very incredible observation. Because what we see here is normal people going about normal routines and God doing extraordinary, miraculous works. The fact is, there is nothing really unique about the birth of Christ. We're not given any unique details. There's no lightning bolt that flashed on that moment. There was no sound around the manger, a woman gave birth to a son, wrapped him up in some cloth, and laid him in a manger. Now, obviously, we see an incredible and miraculous announcement, but not at the even place that it took place. And they travel to find it out, and it's a very silent thing. And then he says this, he said, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given, so God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. You know, I think it's amazing to see how that the gospel moves in and there's a change. And how did that take place? Well, it's a miracle. Just as the birth of Christ was a miracle, the fact that you and I could believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is a miracle. And yet, there's not always trumpets playing when that takes place. And it moves in and God takes over the heart of men and women. And so, as we walk into the text this morning, let's be reminded where we've been and then we'll chart a course forward. Pastor Caleb looked into the virgin birth for us a few weeks ago, and we saw that Christ is born of a virgin. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that that would be the case, and it was told to Mary that that would be the case, that she would conceive a child, and that that child would be born, and he would be the Savior, and take the sins of the world away. And we see that word was confirmed as Mary went and met with Elizabeth. John has been born now. Joseph has been informed of what God's plan is, and now they are moving toward uh, the town of Bethlehem, and no doubt, if I have the timeline right in my mind, the wise men are en route from the Far East, and they're heading over, and they're making that plan to meet together. And all of this is happening, and God is moving all of these pieces on the board. Now, I think there's two things that can happen as we read this story uh, one is that we can look at this and just over, uh, make this over-sentimental. We make it kind of almost like a fairy tale story. And it's a very sentimental story. And, 
And, you know, and we would even get fuzzy on the thing, the idea, well, you don't really have to believe in a historical account. It's about a spiritual understanding of what took place. But I believe very clearly, according to Scripture, that this is a historical event that took place. That these events actually unfolded as we're given this account in Scripture. Then others would say, oh no, we believe that Jesus lived and died. We have historical proof that he lived and died. But this whole miracle thing about his life, that you need to set aside. And two of these ditches on either side of the road, one would say, well, we can deny the historicity of these accounts, but hold on to some kind of spiritual implication of them. And others would say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll affirm the historicity of them, but we'll deny the spiritual implications of them. And so we wrestle with those two things, and I think both of those are very dangerous, and I'll bring that back at the very end of the account this morning. And so let's walk through it together. I want to give you a few things this morning. The first thing I want to say to us this morning as we walk through our text, and literally just five things, I want to say, first off, these are real events. Then I want you to see not only the real events, but I want you to see the prophecy fulfilled. And then I want you to see the simple circumstances that take place here. We'll hear a clear message, and then we'll see the, the observed response of these people. And so the clear, uh, the real, rather, events with real people for a real nation really unfolding in this account. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. He was really a ruler, and Caesar being a title, I think it's interesting that Caesar would have been given a name he would choose, and Augustus would be a title he was given, and it points to his power and his prestige and his ability to rule, and even calling to himself a measure of deity in these titles, that he was a god himself. And he makes these decrees and he begins to move these people around. These were historical markers that we see in the text that Joseph, we already have his line and lineage given to us. Joseph was a real man who came about from a real father and mother and, and, and raised up and had a job and labored and God set them apart for this purpose to, to bring about the raising of the Christ child. Mary was a real young lady. These are not fake stories. They are connected to a real nation. And we can trace back their line and lineage. And we can go all the way back to the beginning of Scripture. And, and they're connected. And the implications of all of this is connected. Mary ponders these things in her heart, she says. And, and that word ponder means to throw about or to cast about in your mind and heart. And Mary is pondering and she is holding all these things in tension herself. That these are real events that are taking place in a real time, in a literal political setting. We, we can trace it all the way back to Abraham and Isaac. And Isaac going up on top of the mountain with Abraham. We go to Joseph and standing there, Jacob rather, and his ladder in Joseph in Egypt. We see Moses by the burning bush and Joshua walking around the wall and Samuel and the kings that followed and David and his throne and Isaiah and Daniel and all the prophets. And now for 400 years God has been silent. He's not spoken to the nation of Israel. He's not given a revelation. And then the first revelation we see is when John's birth is announced. And then we see Jesus' birth announced. And now the angels are speaking. And in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And we see this unfolding. This is a real event, walking it out. Mary and Joseph are walking out in faith into the unknown of what is taking place in their world. As they walk through these events, this young couple, no doubt fearful, no doubt with questions that fill their mind, 
trusting the word of God. But I don't only see real events, but I see a fulfilled prophecy. When we look at these events, the, the thing that's amazing to me, and I've only picked out two, but Isaiah 7, 14 reminds us that it would be of a virgin birth. And here again, she brings forth her firstborn son and wraps him in swaddling clothes, lays him in a manger, and confirming the fact that this was indeed born of a virgin. As she had said already, I do not have not known a man. And so now this has come to pass. The prophecy has been fulfilled that a virgin birth would take place. But not only do we have the prophecy of a virgin birth would be amazing, but the other prophecy I look at is that they would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Well, they don't live in Bethlehem. They're not a part of that area. So they, they, they've left Bethlehem. They've traveled away from their hometown. And now the prophecy says that he'll be born in Bethlehem. And, and I, I wonder if maybe even Joseph knew from his synagogue training that Bethlehem had some significance. And well, if this is the Christ child, how is this going to happen that would be born in Bethlehem? And then all of a sudden he opens his mail that day and he's like, hey, everybody has to go home. Whoa. How? How? Did this all get orchestrated? And, and as I look at this, we see the prophecies being fulfilled. And let me make something very clear. Caesar Augustus didn't move Joseph and Mary. God moved Caesar Augustus. God was working, and as he always does, and, and, and I look at men of power like Caesar Augustus, and we see him, and he's like, I'm going to move everybody about, we're going to register them all, we'll take taxes of who we can, and we'll force them into this taxation, we'll keep control over our nation, and we'll hold the power over the area that we rule. And, and he, he uses his strength and his might, and men of power and influence are convinced that they move people and empires of their own accord, and according to their own purposes. They see the themselves as acting out their own cleverly designed objectives and strategies to accomplish their own goals. And yet you and I know as we sit back here and we look at it from this perspective and the gospel, the word of God tells us that God rules in the affairs of men. And that the very heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And God has orchestrated all of these events to bring this moment in this little town of Bethlehem to where Mary the virgin with child and Joseph of the line and lineage of David, another prophecy, would end up in Bethlehem at this time and when the fullness of time had come, God brought forth his firstborn son. God brought forth his son and he came into this world. It's a historical event and we see the simple circumstances. We make a lot about this, and men can conjecture and make all kinds of things about, you know, miraculous events around the manger scene. The fact is, there are some miraculous announcements, but I don't think you would have been too impressed with the events around the manger scene. I don't, I don't think it would have been something you've been like, wow, this must be something amazing. The only reason there was anything amazing is because the message of the shepherd's coming. And here at this, this manger scene, and then the Bible tells us here that while they were there, so you don't get the picture that they're riding the donkey in at the last minute and all this, oh my goodness, it's time, we got to find a place. And they're running around scrambling to find a holiday inn. That's not what's going on. They come there, they're settled in most likely with family. Most likely the city is overwhelmed with people. Most likely the place is crowded and they're making the best use of it and and, and I'm looking at this, and they were there for maybe some time, and 
The time came that she would deliver her firstborn son, and she delivers him. She wraps him in the cloth that she has available. She lays him in a manger. I've I've read on this for a lot for the last several weeks, and and some would say, well, uh, this idea of the manger, uh, there's nothing spectacular about that. It was just very common, and yet it was the sign the angels were given. So there had to be something rather unusual about laying a baby in a manger, or it wouldn't have been said, this will be the sign unto you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes laying in a manger. So it's not like everybody was going out buying mangers that year, okay? That wasn't, that wasn't the craze for baby cribs. Um, this was a unique thing. But I kind of picture Joseph, he's a carpenter, and forgive me as I read into the text a little bit here, I, I feel like he's kind of like, hey, we'll get it done kind of guy, you know? Let's make this happen. We're stuck here in this house with family. We don't have a place to lay the baby. What are we going to do? Hey, that'll work right there. I'll clean it out, put some straw in it. We'll make this thing work. And I, I picture the guy solving the problem. Uh, I, I remember this from when I was younger. We had gone on vacation with my, my mom and dad, and I have one brother and one sister. My sister is six years younger than me. We'd gone to Gatlinburg uh, for a vacation, and we got there and realized we had left the playpen bassinet thing at home. And so my baby sister didn't have a place to sleep. And so they were scrambling around on what to do. And one of the drawers, in, in the uh, chest of drawers that we were staying in that room, was rather deep. And my dad pulled it out, laid some blankets in the bottom of it, and made a bassinet for her to sleep in, you know. And, just, and, and my dad's that kind of day. guy. You give him a roll of duct tape, he can build you a car, you know. He just make it happen. And, uh, and so I, I kind of picture Joseph just making it happen. And yet this is the sign that we're given. He'd be laid in a manger. And we, we see this coming to be, you know, and, and we read the terms because there was no room for them in the end. And again, I'm not necessarily saying to us, don't, don't ask yourself, are you making room for Jesus? But I don't think that's what they're talking about here. I, and, and so I, I think it's okay if you want to this morning, you can lay down your anger and wrath that you've held on for years toward the motel owners of Bethlehem, Okay they're probably not just kicking Jesus out, all right? Uh, that's not what's happening here. Joseph's family probably uh, has many guests already there. There's no room in the guest room of the family, and so they're in the common area with the family. I picture Joseph doing what he can to make it work for his family in this moment. These simple circumstances are unfolding. It's time. The child is delivered. But then, not only is this child now delivered and laid there in that manger, but then on the hillside we see some shepherds also following some simple circumstances. They're doing the normal routine they've always done. The shepherds would have been low on the social ladder, not always at synagogue or going to temple, not always really on schedule and often not as clean as the Pharisees would like them to be. These men worked in the field. They would have been on the outside looking in of the culture. Could possibly, and some and uh, many authors have uh, hinted to this, could possibly be because they were watching sheep near Bethlehem that they were the very shepherds that watched over the temple lambs that were being set aside for sacrifice. It's an interesting observation that the very shepherds who watched over the lambs for sacrifice were the ones to whom it was announced that the Lamb of God had come. I think that's an interesting connection. We're not told that in Scripture. But it'd be an interesting thought. The normal routine of their life had gone on. 
And, and I just had this thought, isn't, that, isn't it incredible, though, that in the normal routine of life, that's where God meets us? You see, because the whole story here is that God came to man. Man was going on his merry way, doing his own thing, going about his own plans, accomplishing his own ends, and God interjected. And God stepped in. And here again, these shepherds doing their thing, God sends words to the shepherds. And, and, I, and I, I do think it is interesting that God sends it to the shepherds. The shepherds were lowly. They were on the outside. And we do know that Paul says that not many mighty, not many noble, not many uh, powerful people are called. And yet God still does announce it to the kings. And the wealthy kings come also to pray before uh, this newborn child as well. And just a few months later, they'll arrive there. But I want to say this, the posture of both the shepherd and the king are exactly the same. Both of them worship. Both of them must kneel before this child. So we see these shepherds in the field, minding their own business, doing their own work. We see a clear message. Look in verse number 9, and we begin this account. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. That phrase, filled with fear, or that, that idea of being filled with fear is very common when an angel shows up. And unless you think they're being a little bit, you know, squeamish or chicken, you tell me how you feel when an angel shows up. I think it would make you afraid too. Uh, this is something completely out of the ordinary. It's something they were not expecting. This angel, the word angel is literally messenger of the Lord. Maybe the same angel that had come to Mary and Joseph. Maybe the same one that had announced the birth of John. And we're not given the name of what this angel is, which angel this is, but the angel of the Lord, the messenger from God, comes. Notice again, this is a single angel. One angel shows up to give the message, and then the glory of the Lord shone round about them, the King James says. This is the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, and it pierced the night because they were keeping watch over their flock by night, and so we see the, the contrast of the day and the night, and if you'll allow me just to spiritualize the text just for a moment, God's messages always shine light into the darkness. It is always in the middle of the darkness that God's light has come, and, and I want to remind you again, do not live in fear of what men are doing that make this world dark. Remember that it is God who shines light in the darkness. Church, we do not need to lower our heads, uh, strike our colors, and hide out until it's all over. We are called to take ground until the Lord comes. To keep marching forward for the glory of God. And, and, if you, and somebody said this years ago and it struck me. But if the lights are going out, remember usually you turn the lights off right before the show starts. God's about to do something. God's at work. His plan is unfolding, and he wants to do something in the lives of these men, and he announced them in the middle of the night. He comes to them, and here this angel shows, and they were filled with great fear or sore afraid. What an image of God's glory showing in these created beings of great glory. And, and mind you, again, that these angels were such incredible uh, imagery to the minds of these men that even when John the Revelator is conversing with angels on more than one occasion, the angel has to say to him, hey, get up, 
don't worship me, I'm just a created being. That's how impressive these things were. And it would be very tempting for these men to be afraid of the angel. And of course, the angel, just like you and I as created beings, understood his purpose, and that was a point to the glory of God. And he points to the glory of God, the glory of the Lord shone around them. The clear message continues. He says, first thing, fear not. Alistair Begg on this text, he was talking in reference to this. And if you notice the word, he says to them, and the angel said at verse 10, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all people. He said, how do you get from fear to great joy? And he said, you got to have some good news. And there's good news in the middle of this that he's telling them. He's moving them from their fearfulness to the great joy because of the good news of the gospel. I think it's interesting here that we see that this message, and we see the forerunner of everything that Paul is going to unpack in the, in the epistles as we move forward. But he said this message is to all the people, that everyone will get this message, that this is a news that is going. I believe there's an implication here of even the Gentiles are going to hear this. And the hope of the nations have come to all people, his name. And he says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Savior, deliverer, hope, redeemer, the one who would come and save his people. But he, he says, let me define this more. He said, which is Christ the Lord. And he goes further with his explanation of it. Christ being the word Christos or a, a, anointed one. If you were to look back into Psalms chapter number 2, you would see that the Lord's anointed is talked about there. And he's talked about how that this anointed one will sit upon the thrones and he will rule. This is the anointed one that he's mentioning. So when he says Christ, he's pointing to the implications of the Old Testament as the anointed one. The Lord is Jehovah God. He's saying this is the one who has come to redeem. He is a savior. He is Christ. He is Jehovah all wrapped up into this child. Now, this is an amazing thought. He says, and this will be a sign unto you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The implications of what was contained in this title must have weighed heavy in the minds of these men and the people who heard this announcement. Contrast this title, if you would, with Caesar Augustus, because what do we see? We see Caesar. We see this is my position of prestige and power and Augustus meaning look who I am and look up to me and see me as deity and he decrees and he calls out what he wants to happen and yet what we see on the contrast is a baby in a manger who will be savior who is Christ the Lord and all of Caesar's decrees have come to an end but 2,000 years later we're talking about the baby who was born all of man's machinations and kingdoms have been swept into the dustbin of history over and over again, but his kingdom marches on. And here Jesus, laying in the manger, he is Savior at his birth. He is Lord 
at his birth. What does the Old Testament say about this Christ? What does the prophecy tell us? Well, in, in Genesis 3, 15, he will destroy the works of Satan. In Psalms 40, 6-8, he came to be a sacrifice. In Isaiah 8, 14, he would be the stone that the builders would reject. In Isaiah 11, 10, and 42, 1-4, he would be the hope of the Gentiles. In Isaiah 53, 3, he's the suffering Savior. In Isaiah 61, 1, he will set captives free. In Daniel 7, 13-14, he will be on an everlasting throne and in Daniel 29 and verse number 24 he will put an end to sin and that's just a fraction of what it is prophesied that this savior would come and do which is Christ the Lord verse 13 and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying I don't know if this strikes you and if it doesn't you can just not put it in your notes but there were more angels added here, but not more glory added. More angels came to join him in chorus. But I don't know that it necessarily got any brighter because I don't know how you get brighter than the glory of God shining right about them. Because the angels weren't the focus here. It was the message from God that was the focus. They begin to make much of God. They begin to glorify him. And they give this message of hope. And we've sung this. We've heard about this. We've read it. What do they say? Verse 14. They're praising God, verse 13, and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those to whom he's pleased. Peace with God. This is the promise. Grace and peace will not come from us or begin with us. Man will never bring peace on his own. Man will never solve the problems of war. And this was not a prob promise that men would be able to solve the problems of war. It was not a promise that even men would be able to get along with one another. But there was a promise that God had sent peace toward men. That the peace had come to them. You see, Caesar gave them something to do that would earn them favor. Christ came to do something that would procure them favor. Caesar says, go, get registered, pay these taxes, and I won't kill you. And Jesus says, I'll come, and I'll let you kill me so that I can give you peace between you and God. And he came to take our place. The angels prophesied of this peace that would come. I want you to see the observed response. I can't help but wonder what it must have been like after the angels were gone. Have you ever wonder that for a second? Who's the first one to speak up? You know, was there, was there somebody cutting up and joking about it, you know? Man, what was that? What did you guys eat last night? That's crazy stuff. You know, they're, they're wonder, they're, they're, they're astonished of what's going on. They said, man, we gotta, we gotta go find out what, we gotta go to Bethlehem. Who'd they leave the sheep with? Did they even care about the sheep at that moment? They take off and they're like, we got to go find it. We got to confirm this message. And so they travel into Bethlehem. The Bible says they saw the Lord. Verse number 16, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. I mean, how, how did they go about seeking this? I mean... It's not, they didn't have GPS. They didn't, have, they didn't even have a star over the house. I mean, did they walk through the streets knocking on doors and saying, hey, does anybody have a baby born tonight? 
How many people did they wake up looking for this child? I mean, I could picture them walking into a home and, nope, that's not the right one. No swaddling clothes, no manger. All right, check that one off the list. Let's go down to the next one. However it was, they came to this place where the baby was laid, and they saw it was as they had been told them. And they're like, here he is. And they begin to spread the news. They begin to go about and tell of the wondrous things. Verse number 17, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They went to let everybody know that there was a Savior that was born that night. And it was Christ the Lord. They spread the news Contain, uh, they, they're going and continue to make much of God because of what they had heard and saw. I think that would be the right response. The shepherds return even from their evangelistic campaign of telling everyone about the Savior and they return to their field and they're rejoicing and praising God for all they had heard and seen and as it had been told them. And we're not told anything else about these shepherds. We don't know anything else about them. But then we see Mary's response. Mary's the only other response in this section of Scripture that we see. But here's what she did in verse number 19. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The idea of pondering in the heart, this word is sambalo, it's to bring together in our minds. Is to take all the parts of the story and to ponder them, not just one aspect of it. And there's really a lot of avenues here for her to ponder, is there not? I mean, there is the historical reality. Whoa, the Messiah has come. But how does that fit in the political reality of where we're living at? Herod is the king on the throne for the Jews, and Caesar Augustus is ruling over even Herod himself, and What does that mean? I mean, is my son in danger? Are we in danger? There's the personal reality. I mean, Joseph has gone with me this far, but now what? Are we going to have arguments about this in years to come? Is this going to be a point of contention long term? What's the theological implications of this? What does this mean for me? What does this look like tomorrow? When everything is done and quiet, what does this look like? And, and, and we get this picture of Mary, I think, just walking by faith and maybe even like you and I begins to be doubtful. Even Jesus, the one window we have into his childhood, he reminds her, I must be about my father's business. And I think that was a gentle but a firm reminder that Joseph was not his father, that he had come from somewhere else and he had a greater purpose and she's reminded of it. And then we see her at the woman of the wedding of Cana and she said, whatever he tells you to do, do that. She had confidence in him then. And yet then she thinks in just a few short days that he's lost his mind. And she goes, hey, you need to lay down, come home. Uh, You're going crazy out here preaching like this. And then we see her at the foot of the cross. And no doubt the seedbed of all of these events must have been swirling in her mind as she began to contemplate all of these things. And and I would say this morning that you and I must contemplate or ponder all these things. Not just one part of it. And this morning, if Christmas is to you just a sentimental fact, 
then you're missing the impact of what Christianity is and what Christmas is about. It's not just a sentimental story with some nice warm fuzzies and, and we hear all of the different uh, shows today and the, and the programs that will show and you'll get Santa Claus in here and, and he'll come in and then finally somebody believes in Santa Claus. That's not the gospel. That's not the belief we're talking about. We're not talking about some kind of made-up thing that makes us feel good, but a reality, a historical event that's rooted in time, that God had purposed from eternity past, that His Son would be born, that He would live, and that He would die, and that He would rise again, and that one day He would come and He would sit upon the throne of His Father's David, and that is still being unfolded right now as you and I sit in this room. These are the facts of history, and we have to hold those things in our mind. But not only do we hold the facts of history in our mind, but Jesus Christ came to save us from our sins. J. Gresham Macon, he was an American um, theologian, a Presbyterian, from 1881 to 1937. He lived, he was a professor at Princeton Seminary and ended up leaving there and and really did an incredible impact on the nation of America, on our nation through that early part of the 1900s. But he said something in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, and he said this, Christ died. That is history. Christ died for our sins. That is doctrine. Without these two elements joined in absolutely indissolvable union, there is no Christianity. Christ died. That's history. Christ died for our sins. That's doctrine. And these two things must be held in tension together. That Christ was born, Mary. You know the history. But He's your Savior, Mary. And she holds those two things together in tension. It is not enough this morning to believe the history or even the sentiment of Christmas. You must believe all that we've just declared that Christ was born in history and that he was the Savior and is the Savior of the world. And without them, there is no hope of salvation. It is through Christ and Christ alone. Paul sums it up this way, and it is well that we listen to his words and listen to them intently this morning. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This is the message, that Christ Jesus came into the world. That's history. To save sinners, that's our hope. And the response of Paul should be our response, of whom I am chief. Have mercy upon me, oh God. What a Savior. What a message. 2,000 years ago, in a little town, with a young lady, a young man, a child is born, some shepherds come, and the world has never been the same. What a Savior. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that what is said today would resonate in our hearts that, Lord, we would hold these things to be true, that we would ponder them in our minds. Lord, I pray, Father, we would not leave here this morning without settling these things in our hearts and minds. 
But I ask you with your heads bowed and eyes closed, let me just ask you a question or two this morning. If you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, don't put that off. In humble faith, you can come to him. There's no magic words. There's no special event. Just as that baby was born and quietly born, too quietly, the Spirit of God moves in and transforms the heart of an individual. I wonder this morning, would you call on him in humble faith right where you sit, acknowledging that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and he is a Savior who came to save you from your sins. Father, I pray that you would drive the message deep into our hearts. Holy Spirit of God, do a work that only you can do. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.